as I was saying, uh, it's an important topic. To, we read the Bible, we know we're forgiven, but how do we stop ourselves from holding on to that shame and guilt that the, the devil pulls up in us? Uh, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We get a lot of forgiveness, but how often do we get freedom? And we've talked about this in my other sermons where this, this can happen, where we get locked up in it. For years, I've heard of Christians holding on to bad pain about sin in the past for years, 20 years, 30 years. They just have trouble getting over that. And what we need to do is we need to see things the way that God sees this, sees the things. To see it, to accept the fullness of His forgiveness. Now, I want everyone to think for a minute, how are we saved? We're saved, yeah, by God, through faith in God. We're saved by faith through God's, and God's grace. And so... Theologically, we're correct, right? As a church, we've got that down. We've got that. Theologically, we're right. We got that done. Now, think about something else. The judgment is here. It's your turn. Knowing yourself, knowing your sins, knowing your God's standards, that if you Anger, if you are angry at someone, you've committed murder. If you look at a woman with lust or a man with lust, you've committed adultery. So knowing what we've done, knowing what God's standards, how do you feel when, it's your, when your name is called? When you think about that, opportunity, that, that time when your name is called? A lot of times we think of fear, not faith. It's like, oh no. And a lot of that comes from this ping pong ball game that we've talked about a couple of times now that the Satan does, that devil does with us. Whispering in my own voice, Satan put lies in my heart before and after I sin. He tells us we're not good enough or we're all alone or we're betrayed or we're all these things. And he gets us to sin. And then he's on the other side of the table and he's saying, now that you sinned, God will never forgive you for that. You're too bad of a person. You're a bad Christian. And ultimately, we never receive the fullness of God's forgiveness. But what does God do with our sins and more importantly, our behaviors and our experiences that are welling up inside us? How do we allow him to heal us and to set us free? So before I continue, I just want to pray one more time. If you'll pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share this message. I ask that you use me as your mouthpiece, that you send the angels down upon this church to guard our minds so that we can give full attention to this message, that we can glean wisdom from you and from your truth. We ask all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So, 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So everything that we do, everything we talk about as a church should start with the suffering, the death, and the resurrection. And a lot of times, as I've mentioned in my last two sermons, we, for, we gloss over the suffering part, but that's a critical part. 
Christ died for all of our confessed sins, and yet we still feel guilt. And we know that Christ felt alone, abandoned, betrayed by a kiss, violated beyond anything we could imagine, spit upon, shamed, humiliated, stripped naked in the public square, and beat. Tempted to numb his pain, just as we do. We often, that's where most of our sin comes from, is numbing our own pain in some degree. He was tempted to do that. He understands us. And in the end, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's tempted to believe he was forsaken by his Father. We want to connect Jesus' story to our story, to connect that so we we can relate to him. He can relate to us. That all the things that we go through that cause us to want to numb that pain, we we can relate to him in a way that he can provide that healing. For 2 Corinthians 5.21, he knew no sin to be sin for us. Isaiah 53, his soul is an offering for sin. He was our sin offering. Even though he went through that, we still carry that guilt and that shame. And I wanted to look at what is the missing piece? How do we get rid of that? How do we get over it? So I wanted to look at the, the Abraham's story. He's one of the old greats in the Bible, one of the Old Testament heroes. In the Old Testament, he's considered the man of faith by the Jews. So let's look at some of the good things that he did. He followed God by faith at 75, right? He was in an area that was uh, worshiping idols and pagans and all these different things, and he just followed God out at 75, which was a huge step for someone like that. He made altars to God. Everywhere he went, he built a stone altar and sacrificed animals to God's glory so that everywhere anyone else came upon that, they would know about the living God. He allowed Lot to choose. God gave Abraham the blessing. Here's, here's your uh, Powerball winnings, 250 billion, whatever, blah, 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 dollars. And, Lot's, and he says to Lot, you pick. Which, what, what do you want? What do you want? You take first. And Lot says, well, I'll take the valley, you know, the good stuff. <laughs> and the greenest part. And then we have rescuing Lot. So after Lot gets in trouble and four kings uh, come and uh, raid Sodom and Gomorrah and they attack five other kings, he, Abraham, what does he do? He turns around, he masses amasses a, 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 a army of 318 and he goes and he rescues Lot, right? He 318 men from four kings, from four armies, essentially. He pleads for Sodom and Gomorrah. And ultimately, he put Isaac on the altar. I couldn't imagine doing that with my own son. Another thing with Lot, after he, after he uh, beat those four kings, how much of the, the, the proceeds of the war did he take? He didn't take any of it. He paid his tithe and all of it. Just, whatever you guys want, it's all yours. Didn't even want it. Sometimes this is what's dangerous with um, when we look at these Old Testament stories and we look at these heroes. Uh, the Jews, I think, have a little bit of this problem where they look at this and they, they feel like they have to, I have to try harder. I have to pray harder. I have to give my will to God better. 
I have to memorize Scripture. I have to do... And all of those things are awesome and those are all good. But if we're doing it with the mentality that we're trying to earn God's grace as if Abraham earned God's grace, then we, we have something wrong. So, what I, want, what I thought about was when was Abraham declared righteous? Was it at the beginning of his journey or was it at the end after he had done this last atom of putting Isaac on the altar? Was he only, after he earned all of that, was he only declared righteous at that point? Well, we know in Genesis 15, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. Well, Genesis 15 is a lot farther before Genesis 22 when Isaac happened. So it's almost kind of in the beginning or middle of the journey that God counts him as righteous, right? So it wasn't after all of these items. It was in the middle of it that he counted him. So we're familiar with the high points. And what I'd like to do is we'll take a look at some of the low points. So... One of the things he did as he came, he, he, they, they endured a famine, right? And they had, he was married to Sarah, and they went to Egypt. And what did he do? He lied to the Pharaoh about his wife. It was a, it was a half-truth, but it was a half-truth to cover up the real truth, so it was a lie. And his wife, you know, joins the harem of Pharaoh. Another thing he, do, he did, he do, Another thing he did was he wanted Eliezer as his heir. He didn't believe that God would provide. So he wanted, he wanted a, an heir. He wanted to create that for himself. Another thing he did, um, well, now after he left uh, Egypt, Egypt, he ended up taking a maiden with him named Hagar, right? And again, here he sleeps with Hagar and he has uh, his own child. He did it on his own accord. He provided the blessing that God was promising uh, in, in his own strength, and he ultimately started a 4,000-year war, right? Because that was the foundation of the Middle East battle that's still going on today. So at this point, we get to Genesis 17. And at this point, God has changed the names of Abraham and Sarah. And he's promising them to have children, Genesis 17, 17 says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So he's laughing at God. Genesis 17, remember he was counted righteous in Genesis 15. So this is after. And then he also goes on to ask, well, well, can Ishmael be that promise? Can what I've already created be that promise? And God says no. In Genesis 18, of course, we know that Sarah laughs and then lies about laughing, <laughs> right? Uh, and what's funny is, is that God tells him to name the baby Isaac, which Isaac means laughter. So God basically turns the laughter of unbelief into the laughter of joy. So God told, uh, God told them about their child, that they would have their child within a year. Now, if you subtract nine months from 12 months, what do you end up with? You end up with three months, right? And 
we know, if we continue reading the story, that within two or three months of him giving this promise, that he goes and has his wife lie again to King Abimelech. So he still doesn't get God's promise. He still doesn't have faith. He's not faithful and he's trying to do it from his own strength. He wants to do it by his own regard. He doesn't believe that God will provide. People say that in this point, uh, Abraham had finally believed God, but in three months later, he's lying again. So if Abraham had highs and lows, who is the hero? Who's the hero in this story? Is it Abraham or is it God? seems to me that it's God, right? The, the, the whole story is about God being the hero. And one of the things I realized is when I'm looking through all of his highs and lows is Abraham sounding more and more and more like us because we have highs and lows, right? We're, we're, we're no different. The, the story hasn't changed from thousands of years ago. We have highs and lows just as he does. He did. We often look at these huge, these heroes, uh, David and, and uh, uh, all these different people, and we put them on these huge pedestals, and really they're just like us if we really look at their story and we find all of their lows. So it was God's faithfulness in Adam, or in Abraham, that led Abraham to trust in God, which eventually led to Abraham trusting God enough to put Isaac on the altar. Now, if we jump forward to the New Testament, Paul is in Romans, and he's destroying the foundation of righteousness by works, right? We know that that's wrong. And Abraham in this, in Romans, is exhibit A. He's the prime example. So with this background of highs and lows, lots of highs, lots of lows, let's take a look at some of these things uh, uh, in Romans. Because, I mean, starting a 4,000-year war, that's a pretty serious thing. So how was he a man of righteousness? And what I want to investigate is if God can work in Abraham, can he work in us? So let's look at some verses. We have Romans 4.17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into things, into being things that were not. So he's made him a father uh, in the sight of God whom he believed. Believed who? Believed God. And who is this God? The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. So a lot of times when I read Romans 4 in the past, I would see this in light of Hebrews 11, right? Where, where, uh, God, uh, Abraham's faithfulness was that he thought he was actually going to kill Isaac and that God, he had the faith that God was going to raise him up. But, uh, and a lot of that came from this, the, the he who gives life to the dead. But when we look at Romans 4 here, there's nothing that refers to Isaac on the altar. In fact, we're going to look at it and we're going to see that a lot of it has to do with Isaac being born and his birth and leading up to his birth. And so Hebrews 11 is absolutely true, but in this case about granting life to someone who couldn't create life. So it's the second part here, and calls into being things that were not. So he's calling to life uh, 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 the promise within Sarah where she can't herself. 
And what, what I found is, when I, this is where I was try, having trouble finding a lot of support because a lot of this passage troubles co- commentators to the point that they rewrite it. Uh, and some of them have said, well, maybe, maybe Abraham repented. Except for there's two problems with that. There's no record of him repenting out, outright for that. Uh, and when we look at Genesis 17, he got the promise, and two to three months later, he's lying again. So the story, if we look at it directly, doesn't allow us to rewrite it. It just says the opposite of what we're going to see here. So in this passage, we're going to see a lot of pa- uh, passages, a lot of verses that contradict the Old Testament story. And what's the fear in finding verses that contradict something in the Bible? It's not good, right? We, we start thinking, well, if this contradicts that, then can we trust the Bible at all? And we get in a lot of churches I've seen where they just find a different verse that contradicts this verse and they just pick which one they want to believe in. But to me, that's very dangerous. The Bible has to mesh. It has to blend. So we have to prayerfully study in context. And that's what we're going to look at here. So we're going to look at four to five verses that Paul rewrites the record of Abraham to the point that Abraham wouldn't recognize his own record. So we have Romans 4 record says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. So after the record we just looked at, does this sound like Abraham? Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father. So we know he lied to Pharaoh. He took Hagar in unbelief. He started a 4,000-year war. He laughed at God's promise. He lied a second time to Abimelech after the other promise. So is this consistent or inconsistent? We have a problem. So let's go on to the next one. Uh, in Genesis 17, 17, we just read that. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And in the Romans 4 record, without weakening in faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Without weakening in faith? He faced the fact, is that what Genesis 17 says? That doesn't seem to match to me. I think we're getting worse even. The consistency doesn't match up at all. So here we'll go to verse 20. Does this match? He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Did not waver. So what I want to do is I'd like to later ask Ashley and Lotte and, and Ruth, if they would like Abraham to show up and give a little lace lesson to the faithfulness of husbands and to see if he can teach us how to be a faithful husband, would those women think that he might have wavered just a little bit? <laughs> or, and Lisa too, you wanted Abraham to come teach Dom? Would, would he think, well, would they, maybe, maybe he wavered just a little? There's, there's a problem in the passage. And it keeps getting worse, but we're getting to the point where it's going to get good. So far, it's all false. And when we get to verse 21, there's no way to rewrite it. It says, he was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. Fully persuaded. Paul's writing with absolutes here. There's no way around this. He's not like, oh, it took him a while to be persuaded. He was fully persuaded. If we look at the full record always hoped, always had faith, always believed, fully persuaded, 
And this is why. Verse 22, it says, this is why. That it was credited to Him in righteousness. Now, I think about that. It came at the end. It said it was credited to Him in righteousness. And we know in Genesis 15, 6, Adam believed the Lord and he credited it to Him in righteousness. But the timeline seems off. And how do we deal with all of these verses that seem to be opposing each other, the inconsistencies? Paul provided no exceptions in the way he wrote. It was very firm, always hoped, always had faith, always believed, fully persuaded. So naturally, we have to look in the context. So let's look at 23 and 24. And it says in the words it was credited to him were not for him alone, were written not for him alone. Maybe my video's not working. Not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will give righteousness. So it's not for him alone, but also for us. For us who believed in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now, this is our record also. Who of you have this record? Abraham had highs and lows. We have highs and lows. How can we be perfect in faith, perfect in hope, perfect in trust, always fully persuaded? Whose record does this sound like it is? Sounds like Jesus Christ. He's the only one who had a perfect record, right? But is it in context that would tell us it's Jesus Christ? So let's look at Romans 4.25. Jesus was delivered. It says he was delivered to death. Well, we know that's Jesus was delivered to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. Justification, just as if I never sinned, just as if Jesus lived my life. So this is a radical rewrite of Abraham's record. It's not Abraham's record at all. It's totally opposite. And Paul is writing in absolutes. There's no way we can rewrite it and say, well, this is Abraham's story and this is this and that. And he did this all under the influence of the Holy Spirit, right? And when I came into this realization of what this is actually saying, there's only one way that I could feel. And I want to sum it up in this video. My mind was blown. <laughs> Daddy had to take a break while I was working on the sermon, and there was Mason, so we taught him a new trick. The Bible and God keep a perfect, accurate record. But with Jesus Christ, that record was given and covered over our record. Abraham's past and our past. He covers both. So what I want to do is let's look at this like as if it was a whiteboard, okay? The black marks are sins. Abraham's sins, our sins, they're on this big whiteboard. Now God wipes that whiteboard clean. Our Abraham's record is clean. And that's good. That's very, very good. We need that clean record. But is the clean record even enough? Is a clean record enough? God says, therefore you, must be, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We don't need a clean record. We need a perfect record. So a clean record's not enough. We can ask for forgiveness all we want. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. Jesus says perfect, not just forgiven. We don't just, we don't hope against hope. We don't 
uh, hope against hope that God forgives me. Hope against hope that I slip into heaven. But that's the way we see it, don't we, sometimes? I mean, I know that I was, I was always sitting there. I know what I do. I know what God's standards are. I know what I've done in my past. And even though I know I'm forgiven, a lot of times I'm just thinking, I'm just going to slip into heaven, right? When the, when the line comes up, I'm just going to go, ooh. And just go underneath the turnstile and somebody will be like, what are you doing here? Shh. <laughs> and walk to the other side. Because that's the way I feel when I'm holding on to that shame and that guilt of my past transgressions. If we identify with Jesus Christ dying for our sins and our guilt and our suffering and identify with His record, do you know what He does? He identifies with us so closely. He gets right into our lives so intimately that we get His record. His record becomes our record. Always hoped. Always had faith. Always believed. Fully persuaded. If we move this information from head to heart through prayer that God was this good, that God did all this for us, would we carry that same shame and guilt for 20 and for 30 years to let the devil work in our head the way that he does? I've mentioned this before, that we need to use prayer to grab the information, to pray, and to put that into application in our lives, and to pray again and be transformed. That's how it works. Now, some say... Oh, and one more. It says Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. Some say I need to forgive myself or almost talk myself into believing that I'm saved. But is that what the heroes did? Did, the, did Moses finally come up and say, okay, I finally, believe, I finally forgive myself? Did, did Abraham say, I finally forgive myself? Did David forgive himself for, for having Uriah killed? No, they say over and over and over, God is merciful. God is merciful. God fixed it. God fixed it. So what we have to do is come to God in prayer and just say, you know what? I'm going to sit here and pray until I receive your glory, until I receive the fullness of your forgiveness until I receiving Roman, the Romans 4 record, until I feel that, until God comforts me and encourages me. And be willing to let God show us anything, anything in our lives, any negative thought, anything that keeps us from receiving His, his, his uh, fullness. Because that is what will keep the, the wall in between us when we have these, these past things that we try to end up uh, covering ourselves or numbing with our own uh, results. We should come to God and pray as Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way. Search me so I can receive the perfect record of Christ coming into judgment. So one last thing before we close. 
what I wanted to look at was the key. What is the key to Abraham receiving that record of perfect faith, right? I've, I've talked about it. We see it. We're like, wow. You know, I was, Mason was like, you know, all that. But how do we do it? How did that happen? How do we make that work? Perfect hope grew stronger every step, always believed, never wavered, fully persuaded. If we step back to verse 17, we'll see who the God is that Abraham believed in. And it gives a very special characteristic. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. This is the back part of the verse 17. He calls things that are not as though they were. It's a very interesting characteristic. So let's take a look at these. Abraham's New Testament record in Romans always hoped. Did Abraham always hope? No. That's, so God's calling Abraham's record something it's not. Always had faith. Did he always have faith? He lied twice, put his wife in harems, all these different things. It's, he's calling it something that is not. Always believed. I don't think that that story matches. He's calling it something that is not. Fully persuaded. He lied a second time after the promise and laughed at God. He's calling it something that is not. Credited with righteousness. He's credited with Jesus' record of righteousness, not his own. Many Christians hope that God wipes the black marks off and we slip into heaven, hoping against hope. We confess our sins, but we hold on in our heart to the guilt and the shame. Paul's showing us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, that Jesus Christ's record is ours. So, how does this look? How does someone, whether that someone is you or me or someone else, let's say someone even comes to me or someone, one of you, how do they get over that shame and that guilt? And what if it's a, such a horrible shame and guilt that they feel they can't even get, they can't even talk about it? I, I can't even say that's how bad of a person I am. And there are people that believe that with a lot of things, whether it's um, sexual transgressions, uh, abortions. There's a lot of things that people do in their past and then they come forward into God and they understand that and then they can't let go of those things and they feel like they can't even talk about them. So there's a couple of choices, right? Number one is I can try and talk that person. I can talk it out of them, right? I can sit there and just try to figure it out and just, you know, get it pry them open like a can opener or something now that's not the best way to do it but it's possible i mean if it was a, a you know someone like delhi as a certified uh, counselor could probably work that way the second option is we could just wait for that person and is ready to share right and then but then of course that means they're leaving our presence in that shame and that guilt that they can't even talk about that's just eating them up inside the last part is identifying with Christ. And I've said this before, that we need to receive, just like it says in the New Testament, 257 times, receiving Jesus' spirit of surrender to face your shame. So we struggle to surrender our will to the will of His Father. Just like Jesus did in the garden, and we need to receive His spirit of, of surrender. I mean, He was so against what was supposed to happen he was sweating blood 
but he still submitted and still surrendered. So we take this to, to God in prayer. And we can pray for that person or we can pray for ourselves in this way. The most important part is that we pray and that we spend at least a little bit of time meditating on God's word and letting him answer. I'm going to get that picture off the screen. So here's an example. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for having Jesus struggle to surrender his will in the garden to fulfill prophecy so he could take to the death on the cross all the ways that I'm struggling to go where you want me to go, to rise again so I can receive Jesus' spirit of surrender. And sometimes this brings out a little bit and we can start thinking about this and that person starts having a, a, an epiphany. We need to listen to that Holy Spirit. The person doesn't need to share the details. We don't need to obviously pry into their lives and understand the details. Sometimes they start getting this healing on their own and that's all that's needed. They only need to confess to God. But sometimes we get stuck again. So we need to go through it again. We need, and because we're at the same three options again, we either pry it out of them, we let them go, or we pray. We we take it to the cross, and we pre, repeat this prayer a few times. A lot of times, Christians struggle with the issues of the past. They struggle between the head, the thought that I know I am forgiven, and the heart, holding on to that guilt and shame, going, I hope I slip into heaven. I hope I make it. So we can try and set them straight and say all the right things and we can try and make someone believe. You just need to believe. You're forgiven, Glenda. Just believe. And we could say this and I could say all the right words and I could say provide Scripture and do all these different things. But if you remember in my last sermon, Jesus had perfect information. He had perfect doctrine and He had perfect truth. And yet, did that change the disciples' belief system for the three and a half years that He discipled or... or, uh, preach to them. If Jesus' words didn't matter and they didn't work with the disciples, what's the chance that mine won't work either or yours won't work either? I mean, small chance at least, maybe 100% chance that mine won't work. So again, if we can't make the change, we have to talk to the Lord. We have to receive the Lord into our lives. The best option is always to pray. 2 Corinthians 5.21, our scripture reading, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that he might be, we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In my last two sermons, I talked about all the ways that God relates to us. I mentioned it earlier, how Jesus relates to us with all the suffering that He went through. But how does He relate to our sin? Well, He became the sin. He died the sinner's death. He died the death we deserve. We were supposed to be on that cross. We were supposed to die. And He died. So He can relate to any of our sins. But we need to also look at that. Uh, we also need to look at the, um, the, the experiences that we hold on to, that guilt and the shame, and help get forgiveness for that. We also receive the perfect record of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ rewrites the identity that Satan has for us. And he gives us his identity and record. In Hebrews 10:14, I have perfected forever those who are being made holy. Can you improve on being perfected forever? Forever. 
We need to receive that every single day. That perfection that God is working in our lives. Because every time we hold on to that sin, that shame, and that guilt, and we allow the devil to work in, his little, in our minds with his little games, we're basically blocking God out from working his, perfect, uh, he's working his perfection in us forever. We're blocking him that day. And we need to receive that every single day. I know you're already sorry. I'm already sorry for everything that I did. If we could take it back, we would. But we need to take it to the cross and pray. And then take it to the cross and pray. And take it to the cross and pray and repeat. Meet with Him. When we receive His grace, what happens is my sin suddenly becomes a gold mine of grace. I become the woman at the well and can move into ministry because what did the woman at the well do when she finally realized? She went and told the whole town and Jesus had to stay another day or something. I can't remember how long he stayed. But um, people that experience grace, they don't hide. They always tell on themselves. This is what God did for me and this is what, this, this is what I did. This is what God did for me and this is what God will do for you. you know, and they just get excited about it. The Bible says that the law is a mirror to show us the sin and the way that we repent, right? That's its purpose. But it's critical that we connect with Jesus, that we accept his forgiveness and then also accept his record and accept what he's done in our lives and how to relate his lives to ours and how to allow for healing. That we receive, as we've seen here, Jesus' record until we finally get to look at that mirror and we see a different picture. And from there, we get to tell the whole world. If you bow your heads with me, we'll close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank You so much for who You are, what You've done for us, sending Christ to suffer for us so easy to gloss that over because it's so brutal to see the ways that he was treated God but all of those things were necessary so that he could relate to our lives he had to go through that so that he experienced all the things we experienced so that like a support group he's always there for us that he can understand better than anyone else we thank you for that God so much we ask that you Use the Holy Spirit to enlighten us of those negative thoughts and those negative actions and those feelings to purge Satan from our thoughts so that we can remove the walls in between our relationship with You. God, we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.